This presentation is from Design Research 2021, day two. Well, thanks everyone. Um, we want to share a little bit about how user experience is making a difference within New South Wales health and um, especially in the midst of a once in 100 years, hopefully, global pandemic. Um, there's been lots of talks uh, today and yesterday about doing something meaningful with user experience. So we hope that this talk fits in well. Um, the aim of this talk really is to help you reflect upon your own user experience practice and um, how your organisation works and th how those two fit together. So just a little bit about us. Uh, so I've been working in the user experience field for over 20 years um, in a range of places at consultancies. Um, I spent uh, time at, ten, at eBay in the UK, worked at Google for 10 years, um, and then startup and then now at New South Wales Health. Um, currently, what I'm trying to do is build a facility where we can do fake prototyping and simulation within healthcare so that people don't die when we do tests on them. Um, think of it like a fake hospital. Such a cool project. Hi everyone, I'm Michelle. I'm the Acting Senior Manager of the Human Centred Design Team at eHealth. So I've recently um, started managing, managing the amazing team that Aaron has been building over the last two years. Um, I've worked in UX for almost 10 years and also recently finished my PhD, which focused on the design of interactive equipment for stroke patient rehabilitation. You can call her Dr. Michelle. She loves Please it. Please don't. Please don't. So firstly, um, one, of, one of the colleagues in our team, when, when she was a child, she, she said to her mum, when I grow up, mum, I want to be a tree. And the mum sort of was a bit perplexed. But I want to start this talk with a fish. Um, in many senses, working within user experience within healthcare is a bit like this fish. This is an anablet. Um, it lives in South America. It grows about 30 centimetres long or about one foot for American friends. And it, what it does is it swims along the surface of the water. Now, the unique thing about this fish is that it has four eyes. Well, really, it's got two eyes, but it's split into two sections each. And two parts of the eye look above the surface of the water and two parts of the eye look below the surface of the water. And it swims along and, and the eyes allow it to look for food and predators and um, that might come at it both above and below the surface of the water. And in many senses, this fish is similar to our work within health. The general public, like most of you, see what's happening above the surface. From the outside, you see things like the COVID numbers, the vaccination rates, the, the things, the press conferences and what's in the newspapers. But as the UX team, we have a unique role where we get to see not just what's on the outside above the surface, but we also get to see what's below the surface, what's happening behind the scenes. And this talk is a little bit of a snapshot into our work, giving you a view below the surface and hopefully a greater appreciation for the work that's happening. What we're going to do is present some case studies, um, but they, they might seem somewhat ordinary to you because we're using fairly standard user experience techniques. And in many ways they are, but what we want to do is try to show how we're using these techniques to nudge a very large organisation to adopt different practices in the middle of a global pandemic. 
So in today's age, we tend to use tools and products with mantras like this, move fast and break things. That was Facebook's developer motto in the first 10 years of its existence. There's digital disruptors like Uber and Airbnb that are often inspired to, and their philosophy is to ask for forgiveness and not permission. And they move into markets and segments and industries, and then they make massive changes and force legislators to come in afterwards to accommodate their new services and different business models. Now, it's interesting that after 10 years of operation, Facebook changed its developer motto to move fast with stable infra. And in many senses, this talk is a little bit about how we're trying to move fast, but with stable infrastructure, because we can't just break things within healthcare. Otherwise, people die and patients get harmed. So our talk is broken up into three main areas. To start with, we'd like to share with you some of the context of New South Wales Health to set the scene and share some of the constraints that we're working within. We'll then present three case studies, the first focusing on the prevention of COVID-19 through the vaccination program, and the second two will look at the clinical management of COVID-19 using remote home monitoring, as well as designing for infection control measures in hospitals. So to start off with, let us give you a bit of background about the New South Wales health system. Now, the health landscape is incredibly complex with lots of different levels of government, as well as private sector and NGOs involved. Now, the two main areas of government are federal and state. Now, federal supports and monitors primary health care, including GPs, surgeries and pharmacies. They also regulate the medicines and, as you probably know, are responsible for buying vaccines for immunisation. Now, state government is responsible for managing all of our hospitals, delivering prevention services such as immunisation, as well as offering community and emergency services. But like most things, it isn't just a cut and dry division of responsibilities. And there are lots of shared responsibilities, including responding to natural health emergencies such as this pandemic. Now, New South Wales Health has 15 local health districts and specialty networks. Now, each local health district, which we refer to as LHDs, because of course we love a good acronym, um, operates the hospitals and provides health services to communities within the geographical areas shown on the slide. The specialty networks do the same, except they support across the state. For example, Justice Health supports people who are incarcerated to access healthcare. Now, in New South Wales, the LHGs and specialty networks are all different autonomous organisations. And the implications of this is that statewide systems aren't adopted uniformly and policies and governance are all managed at that local level. Now, each LHG uses their own technology, which makes it pretty hard for us as designers as each of those different systems um, is, is completely different. Now, an example of this is the electronic medical record, where clinicians write their clinical notes about a patient. So, imagine you're a patient and you live close to the border of two different local health districts. You might go to one hospital, get treatment, and all your clinical notes get written up in the electronic medical record. Say then, two or three months later, you go to another hospital, which happens to be in a different LHD. The second hospital likely won't have the clinical notes um, about your first visit. 
because they're located in a different LHG and therefore have a completely different electronic medical record. So you can probably imagine that this isn't an ideal solution when delivering healthcare. Now, in addition to the LHGs, there are many state health organizations that serve different purposes and to have different focus areas. So, for example, us at eHealth, we work on all the technology from the electronic medical record for clinical work, internal systems such as payroll, rostering and recruitment, as well as tools which patients can use to provide feedback about their experience in hospital. HealthShare, they look at the purchase of all the personal protective equipment, so the PPE, as well as the catering and laundry for all the hospitals around the state and pathology manage all the vaccines. So when looking at the COVID response, you can see how many different organizations need to be working in alignment and swarming on the management of the situation. Now there are vast differences in the landscape and populations in different areas of the state of New South Wales. And this results in vast differences and complexities in the operations we have to consider. So, for example, Royal North Shore Hospital, that you can probably see at the, at the top, um, has 713 beds, as well as, as well as its own helipad, which I think is really cool. And then the image you can see at the bottom is a hospital I visited in Narromine, which is a couple of hours away from Dubbo. And it's really small and just has 12 beds. So as you can imagine, vaccinating someone in regional or rural New South Wales is really different to Metro Sydney, um, as is managing a COVID-19 outbreak. Now, when thinking about the people that we serve, New South Wales caters for a hugely diverse community. 25% of people are li living in New South Wales are in those regional or remote areas. 2.9% identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, and 26.5% live in a household where a non-English language is spoken. So it isn't a, sim a simple situation where the same design might work for most of our users. And it's also a large scale and complex system. The fact that there are almost a million calls for an ambulance in a single year and over 18,000 people in hospital most nights shows the massive scale we're working with. And on top of this, there are so many potential issues that a patient can come to hospital with. So at an individual disease level, there are over 68,000 different diagnoses with a unique set of symptoms and a unique way of treating or managing them. You don't want Dr. Michelle diagnosing you. No, you definitely don't. Um, and then when we talk about the end-to-end -end journey, we really do mean it. We have to consider people throughout their entire life cycle, from the months before a baby is born to looking after someone in their old age. And it shows how important a good experience is, as people aren't able to choose their health service in the, in the way that we choose our telco or our bank. So we need to strive for a good experience all the time. So we've covered the complexity of the different layers of government, the vast landscape of New South Wales, the population and diseases. And on top of all this complexity, let's add in there a global pandemic and a virus that we're constantly learning more about. So what does HCD look like in eHealth? The HCD team acts as an internal consultancy. Now, eHealth is a really large organisation and HCD is really quite new. The team has been around in its current form for less than two years. 
So it's going to take a while and we're working slowly to get traction in lots of different parts of the health system. Now, in terms of our ways of working, we work really closely on projects with our health informatician colleagues, who are people with a clinical background, as well as deep health ICT knowledge. And by partnering in this way, the HCDers, who don't have a clinical or health system background, are able to work with those who do, which results in much better informed design decisions. <laughs> Um, now, you might have also come across the project management triangle before, which looks at balancing quality, cost and speed of a project. And so for health, the focus tends to be upon quality and cost. We need solutions that are high quality, ensuring they meet all the relevant safety and usability principles and that are at a reasonable cost. So we're getting value for money for the taxpayer. However, as a result, speed is often not high of a priority, except when a global pandemic hits. So I'm going to hand back over to Aaron now to talk us through the prevention work he's been doing with the vaccination clinics. Thanks. So what I'm going to talk a little bit about is the setting up of a COVID vaccination clinic. Um, so in late January, a project team was formed to build a system to vaccinate the workers within the health system. Um, so they're typically doctors, nurses, people within the New South Wales health workforce. Um, but there were also some people that were involved in other government um, frontline staff like customs and border patrol people. These were deemed category 1A in the prioritisation list. And to set up these clinics, eHealth had three weeks to have a fully functioning system that aligned with all of the clinical operations across the state. That meant we had to research, design, build and implement a system that worked. Um, it had to work with clinics, it had to work um, with all of those different government bureaucracies and different organisations that Michelle showed. Um, it had to scale and work across uh, multiple different LHDs to vaccinate the staff. The system was designed to be a registration system and a booking system and then help manage people throughout the actual clinic flow itself. The project team we had was a scrum master, um, a project manager, a product owner and developers. And in this case, we had a designer, which happened to be me. Uh, typically, they um, projects like this wouldn't have designers. Typically, the design would be done by either the product owner or potentially the developer. And because this was a vaccination project, time was of the essence. This is a little bit of a story behind the scenes where we fast tracked the entire HCD process in about a week. So let me tell you a little bit about um, the activities we did. So the first thing we did was go out and do some field research. Um, so what I'm showing you here is how a Pfizer vaccine is prepared. Essentially, the vaccine comes in um, and it gets stored in that image in the top on the left-hand side in the freezers. And I'll tell you a bit more about that in a sec. Um, the vaccine is then prepared, goes across the top by the pharmacist. Once it's prepared, it's in this case, wheeled down the corridor in a little trolley, um, to the vaccination station. From this field research, 
we learned that the biggest issue, the biggest concern for the health system was around setting, wasn't about setting up the operations of the clinic. It was about managing this really precious commodity of the vaccine. Let me tell you a little bit about why it's, it was so difficult and what we learned about this vaccine prep. Essentially, there are 45 steps involved in drawing up a Pfizer vaccine. It takes about two hours to make 100 doses with two pharmacists. What happens is that when the vaccine is delivered by the courier, it's, it's delivered in a deep freeze chest that has a tracking number on it. Um, it's put into the deep freezer. So that image on the right, you can see it's got minus 79 degrees Celsius. That freezer can only be opened twice a day. Otherwise, the vaccine might spoil. So you've got one, one opportunity to open it, to put the vaccine in, and one, one opportunity to potentially take it out. Um, so it's really about planning. When you need to use that vaccine, you need to defrost it. Um, and that's where it goes into what looks like the Coke fridge on the left. Um, it gets defrosted into that fridge. It takes about 30 minutes for it to thaw. The, the concentrate can stay in that fridge for one month. Otherwise, the vaccine will spoil. The concentrate comes in vial trays. They have 195 vials in them, and those vials each need to be made up. To take those vials, the vial trays, out of the fridge, you can only open that fridge for a very limited period of time. You can only open it for a maximum of three minutes a day. Otherwise, the vaccine spoils. So you take the concentrate out of the fridge, and then you can only store it at room temperature for a maximum of two hours. Otherwise, the vaccine spoils. And you need to dilute the concentrate and make it up into different doses. Once you've diluted that concentrate, you can only keep it for six hours, otherwise the vaccine spoils. So you can see that it's, it's like a military operation to prepare this vaccine, forecast how much vaccine you need, and then make sure that it's actually getting in arms and not being spoiled. So through doing this field research, it really helped us to understand how critical this vaccine was to the entire operations. The clinics needed a really good understanding of how much vaccine to prepare um, for the vaccinations for staff. And you might think, well, it's just staff. We can just order them in to go and get vaccinated. But of course, real life often intervenes. People get sick, people's kids get sick, their cars break down, their dogs get sick, and you cannot ever predict accurately exactly how many vaccines you need. Um, so you don't want it spoiling. So what we did was we used that field work and various other material to help develop a service blueprint. Now, a service blueprint is essentially just like a customer journey map, except it considers multiple different levels of um, the journey. It looks at the customer, or in this case, the patient journey, um, it also looks at what happens within the clinic, the clinic operations when the patient and the staff interact, um, and also what happens behind the scenes, what sort of systems need to be in play, what are the interdependencies, what online, offline processes need to occur, um, what are the integration points. It really is about mapping out all of the different dependencies 
throughout that entire journey. Um, it takes into account existing screens, existing workflows, and really helps you to map out where is it that you actually need um, to focus your efforts. And it was a really critical tool to help with change management, training, onboarding, and operationally setting up these clinics. Now, typically, the health system just focuses upon one line, which might be the patient journey or potentially the clinic journey, and they don't bring the two together. So by presenting it in this kind of way, it really helped them see all of those different dependencies. And then we swarmed on the problem as a project team. We wrote up all of the different use cases, and you can see some of those on the whiteboard. We divvied them up amongst the HCD team members, and we all took different use cases, sketched them out, and then built a front-end design. And what really enabled us to do that was the digital service toolkit, the design system that the Department of Customer Service helped develop. So thank you, TJ. You guys helped with the pandemic. Um, it enabled us to make sure that we had six designers, but we were able to get going very quickly. We didn't have to talk about what buttons do we use? Do we use cards? What colors, et cetera, et cetera, like all of the other things we've just heard about design systems. So it meant that we could go from concepts on the left to a design relatively quickly um, and actually have a design that got implemented. One of the few times the engineers actually built almost identically what I designed. And then like all good UX people, we followed up and did field research to see how the designs were being utilized in practice to make modifications. So on a clinic, um, just before it went live, we went through the entire clinic flow and visited and spent multiple days there. This is the Liverpool vaccination hub. You can see uh, frontline staff registering and checking in to the clinic. They would then go through to a waiting area where they would be vaccinated. Um, and then they would be observed to see if there was any side effects from the vaccination and then eventually discharged happily. So this clinic is uh, in Liverpool. It was designed just to vaccinate um, staff workers within that Southwest Sydney region. And it's vaccinating over 1,200 people a day. And since then, using this system, over 1.1 million people have registered for the vaccination. And most of the clinics across New South Wales Health are using it um, at this point in time. Is that the time you had to take your shirt off in front of a whole heap of people, Aaron? Yeah, that, that's another benefit of um, being the patient. I, I had to get my um, shirt off, um, but we won't show a video of that because it's not that sort of um, seminar. So we'll move on to the um, clinical management side of things. And so, Michelle's going to talk a little bit about that. Fantastic. Thanks, Aaron. Um, so we'll be talking about two case studies. So firstly, the design of a home monitoring app. And secondly, the design sprint around infection control. So for those of you who might not know what it is, remote monitoring technologies allows monitoring of patients outside of the traditional clinical settings, so primarily in people's homes. So when a patient's discharged from hospital, they're given a set of sensors which are relevant for their condition. So for COVID, this is a temperature sensor and a blood oximeter, which is the, the blue thing that's shown on the slide. 
They, they, they then use these sensors to take readings and report on those once or twice per day to their clinical team. Now, for this particular project, we work closely with the Southeastern Sydney Local Health District, who've partnered with UNSW and another university all the way over in Austria to create this remote monitoring system. And whilst COVID was the focus for this particular redesign, the team are working on home monitoring for cardiac, stroke, mental health, gestational diabetes and COPD. So you can see how broadly this type of system can be used. So this work was one of the key focus areas of the Virtual Care Accelerator, which was one part of New South Wales Health's response to COVID-19. And the aim of this work was to accelerate and provide statewide coordination around these eight key focus areas. And these particular focus areas were identified as they would deliver value and were feasible to deliver uh, within the COVID context. So firstly, to look at the patient view of the remote monitoring app. The pre-existing product looks like this. So as you can see, it has all the functionality, but could definitely do with an iteration from a design and usability perspective. Now, some of the techniques that are new to health involve things like ideation and exploring ideas rapidly and in a conceptual way. Now, in this case, we were focusing upon past measurements of oxygen saturation, as well as how to educate patients as to why this is important. Now, when exploring different designs, Aaron looked at, vi the, at visualizations based on an axis of level of detail with summary on one end and detailed on the other, as well as the representation of information with iconography and simplified information on one axis and accurate and numerical representations on the other end of that axis. And this was to ensure that the representation of data was at the right level of granularity for patients and therefore easy to, for them to understand. He also mapped out the user journeys in the app, including onboarding components um, that taught the patients how to use the physical devices as well as the app. Now, alongside the redesign of the patient view, we also looked at the clinician portal. Now, the existing clinician view looks like this. Some issues included not being able to easily see the headers of the table and not being able to easily see which measurements that the patients have provided are out of range. So whilst those red and orange shaded areas show that the patient has some measurements that might be at risk, it doesn't tell the clinician which one is the issue and they have to click through into the patient's profile to find out. Now, issues with the clinical graphs included not being able to easily see the data because the legend or other pop-ups came up over the patient data. So as you can see in that second graph on the slide, there is a box which shows the details of one single data point, but it then blocks the view of the overall graph. So whilst it was still possible to see the graph, it took a little fiddling um, for the, from the clinicians and they weren't particularly happy about it, understandably. So we took a design process that would be very familiar to you. We did exploration um, with six clinicians. Overall, they felt the system worked well, but there were some usability issues. Then we went into design using the New South Wales design system with a particular focus on usability and safety. And next up was testing. However, as a result of the recent COVID surge in New South Wales, the clinicians are a little too busy for usability testing, understandably. So we'll do this as soon as everything returns back to normal. Now, I'm pretty sure the new designs are better. <laughs> I hope so. 
um, but we should use ability to test them. Um, so something that's been really new for me when working on design projects in health is the importance of safe design. Unlike most of the projects I'd worked on throughout my career, my design was unlikely to ever have an impact on whether a clinician gave the correct diagnosis or how they managed a patient's condition. And safety is a core part of what we do, which is why evaluation is actually particularly important in this industry. Now, the eHealth clinical engagement team have looked at this three-phase approach to safe use of ICT systems. So building safe, reliable, and high-quality ICT, which includes making sure our systems are secure and available for clinicians when they need them, ensuring the safe use of ICT by ensuring technologies are usable. So this includes designing interfaces that clinicians can easily use and that supports them to make good clinical decisions. So definitely the area where our work makes the biggest impact. And finally, promoting complete use and current use. And this is about understanding how the different systems are being used and where they can be optimised to be that little bit better. So safe design factors in a mix of safety and usability. And these two areas often overlap and sort of work well with each other. But in some cases, one needs to be prioritised over the other. So, for example, sometimes a level of friction is introduced, such as an alert to let clinicians know that a patient's condition might show that they have, could have sepsis or alternatively possibly COVID-19. And this is usually a big alert that at times can be difficult to get rid of that comes up in the electronic medical record. However, whilst it reduces the usability of the system, it is really important from a safety perspective. So it's one of those things we have to manage. So let's jump into the new designs, which hopefully are better. <laughs> um, so the new designs show you a quick view of the patient's condition, including which parameters are out of range, which you can see on that table at the top. And we also remapped the hierarchy of information so that clinicians could easily see the most important information um, towards the top of the screen as soon as they log in. Then for the graphs, um, we, they, we introduced a quick view of the patient's condition um, at the top of the page. We made it easy to see those trends in the graphs without any overlays or pop-ups. And we also introduced between the flags, which is a visual representation of a patient's observations um, to see if they're in normal ranges with the overall aim of reducing deterioration. So on the screen, you can see those orange and red shaded areas on the graphs. So in this case, so sorry, in the case that the values are in that orange area, it means that the patient needs to be reviewed and have their observations or those measurements taken again. And in the red area, it shows that they're really at risk of deterioration and maybe need to, may need to be escalated. So now I'm gonna hand back over to Aaron to share with us about that infection control design sprint. Thanks. So what I want to talk about is um, one last case study before we wrap up, and it's around um, infection control and how we did a design sprint with a group of different clinicians um, earlier this year. So when thinking about infections, there's three main ways that um, infections can be transmitted. There's contact. So for example, if you shake hands with someone who has dirty hands, um, then you might pick it up from them. So things like chickenpox or norovirus would be spread typically by contact. Then there's droplet. So if someone sneezes um, and then it spreads onto maybe your hand or into your mouth, you inhale it, then you could potentially get it as well. 
So things like mumps or meningococcal. Um, and then there's airborne. And that's basically when someone with the illness breathes. Um, it's a respiratory condition. It floats out. It has particles in the air. Um, and you can see that um, COVID is particularly an airborne risk, but it's also droplet um, risk as well. So things can cross over into multiple different categories. Um, you can also see how much things, how much infections can potentially spread. So contact is much more limited, um, whereas airborne, it could potentially spread many metres depending upon, you know, where the wind is blowing, etc. Now, we were particularly looking at the area of infection control within an isolation room. So an isolation room within a hospital is essentially a, a single bedroom that's used to help manage infections. Um, so most hospital rooms in a public hospital, they're shared wards. So there might be four beds in it or eight beds in it. But if someone has particular infections, they need to be isolated from others so that they don't infect others or potentially contract any illnesses that others might have as well. Um, so these isolation rooms are single bedrooms. Some of them are designed to keep germy patients away from other people. Um, some of them are designed to keep very sick immunocompromised patients away from other other potential infections. So there's a whole range of different designs of these isolation rooms. Now, when we treat patients, um, we typically store their information on a medical record, which is all electronic nowadays. There's no more paper charts hanging at the end of the bed, um, at least not in most public hospitals. Um, and these are all stored on um, a computer, which is a bit like a laptop, and it sits on a little trolley or, or it might be at a nurse's station or a staff station, which is a fixed computer. We were particularly interested in these uh, mobile computers. They're, they're essentially called workstation on wheels or WOWs um, because normally what would happen in treating a patient is a nurse or a doctor would have a workstation on wheels and they'd be trundling this thing around, um, identifying patients, looking up their history, taking notes, um, looking at all the medications and things on the computer. Now, in the case of these isolation rooms though, the real challenge is that you can't easily bring equipment in and out of these rooms because they're infection risks. If you bring something in, you could potentially compromise the patient. If you take it out, you're potentially spreading the infection. And cleaning a computer is very difficult. Like if you think of the crud that goes under your keyboard, um, yeah, imagine in a hospital scenario that you don't want um, tiny infections spreading from, say, uh, someone coughing or sneezing in a room, landing onto the computer, the nurse or the doctor touches the keyboard, and then that spreads around the hospital. Um, also, we can't afford to have one computer in every single room at every single patient bedside. So you really have this kind of limited stock of workstation on wheels um, but they're really indispensable. So we use the Google Ventures design sprint approach. Um, having spent a lot of time at Google, um, I'm a little bit biased, but essentially it's just following a double diamond, typical UX process where you're um, going broad and then refining and then going broad again and coming back in. And this was the first time that, to our knowledge that this was used within New South Wales Health. 
you can see some of the details about um, what we did on that particular day. Um, the key thing for us in this was involving lots of different participants from many different organisations to get a more holistic view of the problem and also what the solution could potentially look like. Essentially what we did was, you know, go through your initial defining the goal, constraints, understanding the user journey, um, going deeper, consulting experts, and then defining a focus area um, to work on. The, the focus area we decided to focus particularly on was about when you give people medication, um, you typically need to identify them first, then check the medication that they are meant to be prescribed, um, and then give them the medication. And this all involves using the workstation on wheels, which is incredibly difficult if it's sitting outside of that isolation room, um, because to use it, you would have to, you know, take um, don and off all of your PPE, your protective equipment, before you go in and out of that room and the computer sitting outside, especially if you just need to check one or two things. I won't go through all of the details of here, but you can see some of the ideas that we generated um, by the different clinicians, things like smart bands, projecting the computer into the display into the room, using intercom systems, simplifying the information so that it's easier to process. Um, and then we ended up picking a couple of solutions, storyboarding them, and then role-playing them. In the end of the day, we ended up using two um, particular solutions to test. One was a intercom-like solution, a bit like a walkie-talkie that was voice activated. Um, and then the second was um, essentially a projection of the EMR of the workstation on wheels into the room. And we hacked that up using duct tape, a projector, um, and an extra long HDMI cable. Um, so it's really about testing these solutions in a very scrappy, fast way in a simulation center um, to, to help quickly resolve what's gonna fly and what's not and what needs refinement. So we have three final reflections before we wrap up. So we know we need to continue pushing boundaries. So as you will have seen, a lot of the tools and methods we bring are not new to UX. And in fact, they're fairly well established, but we're bringing them to a new industry where they're really not very regularly used. Therefore, there's a lots, lots we need to take into account from a change management perspective, including building trust, introducing these new methods really carefully, and also working with them alongside established practices. Now, spreading the word of UX can be slow, but the impact it can have on the patient's and clinician's experience is absolutely massive. Now, it's also important that we put those right guardrails in place for new methods to support adoption. Now, this can include starting at the top and ensuring that we have executive sponsorship, ensuring we have the right people in the team, which in this case is people with a clinical background who understand that the health system really, really well. And we also need to make sure that we start proving these methods on much lower risk projects that don't compromise quality so there's none to little risk of any patient harm. And the, the last thing that we just want to leave you with is about really defining what quality level are you aiming for. So this is a photo of Sir Robert Watson Watt. He, is, uh, he was a Scottish radiophysicist 
and he helped invent radar just prior to World War II. So in World War I, the Germans had flown across the English Channel in Zeppelins and bombed a lot of the, the towns and the cities across um, England. And in that time afterwards, the German aircraft capability had increased. And so the British government were really concerned about, well, how are we going to stop the Germans coming over and bombing us again? Crossing the English Channel took about 20 minutes in an aircraft. And by the time um, fighters were scrambled up from the ground, the bombers would have dropped its payload and be heading back to Germany. It was also not feasible to have fighters permanently in the air patrolling all the English coastline. So he proposed a way to detect radar or de to detect aircraft um, before they were visible, which became radar. He built radar towers all around the coastline of England, and what it would do is detect the German aircraft coming. It was known as chain home. And you can see in that map on the bottom right area, there's a dotted line around the border of the coast. But he had a lot of critics. People said to him, look, you're using a really low, non-optimal frequency. The stuff that people are doing in other countries, they're more powerful, the radar's better, it can detect low-flying aircraft, your one can't. And he's, he said that it's better to have something that worked and was available now than a promise of something to come. He was quoted as saying, give them the third best to go on with. The second best comes too late and the best never comes. So let me say that again. Give them the third best to go on with. The second best comes too late and the best never comes. And afterwards, he did iterate upon his system and develop a more powerful system, which you can see with that black line around the side of the map. And another way to think of this is, you know, perfect is the enemy of the good, which is attributed to Voltaire. So we were trying to move New South Wales Health, this massive organisation, into a whole different value, which was speed and quality, not speed and cost, sorry, not cost and quality. And it's not always the right thing to do, but COVID really forced our hand. So what are your organisational values? What are the things that your company values above all else? What are the implicit things? What are things that are talked about on staff meetings, Monday morning meetings, or whatever the forums are that get shown up that everyone needs to know these metrics? Because they will often tell you what the organisation really cares about. So we hope that by giving this talk, it gives you a greater appreciation for what's occurring below the surface and it resonates with you. We hope that it also gives you some ideas about how to help the organisations that you work with adopt UX techniques. Martin talked yesterday about non-human personas, you know, so maybe we should go one step further and aspire to be a bit like a fish, a four-eyed fish, where you're looking both above the surface of someone else's practice um, but also reflecting down below within your own practice as well and your own way of working. Look, and while COVID is an awful tragedy that's impacted everyone around the world, in some ways it's been a real privilege to be working within the health system at this time, to know that we are really saving lives and making a difference within UX. So thank you. Thanks everyone.